Hey, welcome to the Perfect Faith Podcast. I'm Kirk Klingerman, your host, and this is episode 11 of season 5. In this episode, we're going to continue on in a series entitled The Basics, which is basic Christianity 101, as per Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, and we'll reread those verses here in just a moment. But I have a real quick question for you, and that is, do you find yourself struggling with understanding the Bible? And I've asked this before, but this, again, I'm going to, this might be a reiteration, but I'm going to raise this point again to make it a little bit easier for some of you that might be struggling. And that is simply not to treat the Bible as a textbook but to treat it more like a book of relation, if you will, because it is relational. It's not a textbook. It's actually about God and about who he is, who we are, and who we are in him. And the more you study it, the more you get to know him. Of course, that's part of the relationship. In fact, this is the part that makes the Bible come more alive, and that is simply read it from the aspect of sitting in Abba's lap. In other words, you're asking him to teach you what he wants you to see in the Word of God. And it's just like a a well-loved child who's sitting in the lap of the father of our our daddy who's going to teach us the Word through Holy Spirit and think in terms of relationship. And then also understand that your spirit man is going to grasp the things of the Spirit much quicker than your mind or your soul might grab it. So just know that your spirit man is picking up right away a lot of things that your mind just simply has to catch up on. So that is one way to make studying the Bible easier, where it makes more sense more quickly. Think relationally. Don't think in terms of a textbook or think in terms of, I got to read this many chapters, I got to read this many verses or what have you, or I've got to read hours and hours and hours upon it in the Word, which it's good to do that, of course, but instead maybe back off just a little bit in that respect as far as goal setting goes and allow Holy Spirit to lead you in the goals because there'd be specific things that he would like to teach you, things he'd like to show you. And he would do it in the time in which you're able to receive those sorts of things. So don't push yourself, but at the same time, don't give your flesh room to say, hey, we're not pushing ourselves. Just give it a rest for a few days or whatever. No, I mean, it's, yeah, it's a great idea to be in the Word every day, if, you know, if, if you can do that. And you should be able to, you know, I realize things happen and it should be more the exception than the rule that we don't, right? But I'm not going to shit on you either, as far as that goes. I'm not going to try to place something on you that doesn't belong there. And here's another thing that might help you, and that is pay attention to singular and plural forms, you know, like you versus they or me versus us, right? Plural forms. Uh, Because some of those nuances actually unlock Scripture a lot quicker than paying attention to the high fluting words. Sometimes we want to focus on some long word that we read and and lose the context of the verse. And while you're paying attention to the plural and singular forms, pay attention to the little words like the ins or the ofs and uh, the whys or um, 
the buts and so on. I mean, those little words sometimes unlock things as Holy Spirit leads you a whole lot faster than focusing on the big words. I mean, the big words are important. Look them things up too, far as that goes. But you'd be surprised how much just the little things make a big difference. And one thing you notice as we unpack each of these principles in the doctrine of Christ, which is, again, Hebrews 6, 1 and 2, which is talking about the doctrine or the beginning principles of the doctrine of Christ, you'll notice that they are all interrelated, each and every one of them. It's like you can't have one without the other. So there are numerous principles, but yet they make up the whole as one. It's just like there are many members of the body of Christ, and yet it's one body. It's the several that make the whole. And it's just like there's a number of principles in the doctrine of Christ, singular, but yet it's all one doctrine. So you find that singular side pointing out the oneness of the principles as God is one, right? So that's where that singular comes into play. And then into the the plural comes into play. So here we are in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms and the laying of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. So those are six things listed here in Hebrews 6, verse 1 and 2 that pertain to the beginning elements or principles of the doctrine of Christ. It's not necessarily all-encompassing, but it definitely gives a good place to start, especially if maybe you are new to the faith or perhaps you are mentoring or, or discipling someone. This might be a good starting point just to get into the basics of Christianity 101. So, of course, the word doctrine means teaching or instruction, and again, just as I noticed mentioned earlier, it is singular in form, and again, it denotes a oneness to it. While doctrine, the doctrine of baptism refers to various washings, it should also be noted that there are a number of baptisms. There's more than just one, in other words, you know, and yet they are all connected. I mean, it is so easy to focus on one while overlooking the other. In fact, for some of you, it may be that the only one that you're aware of is, you know, baptizing them in the name of Jesus, meaning we're baptizing the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, you know, as in water baptism, not realizing that perhaps there's other baptisms attached to that one. For example, the baptism with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Or there's the baptism of repentance. And then don't forget those that were baptized into Moses. Of course, that particular case pertains to Old Testament things. So, as we begin to look at these various baptisms, if you will, we're going to first define this first one we find in Hebrews 6, verse 1 and 2, or verse 2 more specifically, along with two other Greek words that pertain to baptism. So, what does baptisms mean? Okay, for this, for those that have the Strong's Concordance, it is Strong's number 909, or 909, right? Baptisms or baptism. It is the Greek word baptismos. And it means ablution, meaning ceremony, act of washing, or baptism, or washing. In fact, this word pertains to the act and not necessarily the result. In other words, it's 
It's a rite or act of purification, i.e. elements of the Old Testament rites. So this verse could actually be rendered instructions about washings. So going back to baptisms or washings in Hebrews 6.1 or 6.2, in this particular instance, this word pertains to the Old Testament rites. So it's only used in a few verses actually in the New Testament Uh, Hebrews 9, verse 8 through 11. And as I read this, let me suggest that you read the entire chapter of Hebrews 9 to get a fuller context about this. And that is one thing wonderful about Hebrews. It's a, a very good book on expounding Old Testament in relation to the New Testament, the old washings or sacrifices versus the new one done or our new sacrifice of Jesus Christ, right? So here's Hebrews 9, verse 8 through 11. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshipers perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings. And there's that word, baptisms, washings, various washings. Regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. So this is talking about all these things being types and shadows of things to come until the time of reformation, meaning when Jesus comes. And then we go into Matthew, or I'm sorry, Mark 7, verse 3 and 4. For the Pharisees and all the Jews except they wash their hands oft, eat not, holding the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the market, except they wash, they eat not. And many other things there be, which have received to hold as the washing of cups and pots, brazen vessels and tables. So that that phrase as washing of cups and pots is that same word, baptism, so washings. And then finally, verse 8 of Mark 7 for laying aside the commandment of God, ye hold the tradition of men as the washing of pots and cups and many other such things like ye do. And in, in this particular uh, passage of Scripture, Jesus is actually confronting the Pharisees and pertaining to their outer or their hypocrisy, I should say, and where they hide behind these various rituals and so on. Of course, that's what they knew at the time was the law of Moses. So, as you study these verses in full context, we come down to one conclusion. Rituals or ceremonial washings, as such, make no one clean, right? None of these connect us to the blood of Jesus Christ and the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. None of them. But these do point to the baptisms that are yet to come or that were to come and have come. And our... And, the, and this is the point, and these point to this, this idea as far as baptism. Our identification with Jesus Christ alone makes us clean, not the traditions of men. So as we study the root of this word, which is the verb tense, we'll have a better understanding of its applications. And, let's, and, and, and note this, by the way, with what or whom we baptize or, or with whom baptisms associated with makes all the difference. Let me say that again. With what or whom 
baptism is associated with will make all the difference. So the root of baptism is baptizo, I believe it is, and that's Strong's number 907, 907. And it's from a derivative of bapto, which is Strong's number 911. And that means to immerse or to saturate, used only in the New Testament or of ceremonial abolition, especially or technically of the ordinance of Christian baptism, which is rendered Baptist or baptize or wash. Going further, it also carries the connotation of dipping a garment in a, in a dye, where it takes on the characteristics of that dye itself, right? So it simply means that when we are baptized into Jesus, for example, we are identifying with Jesus himself. So in other words, that means when I'm baptized in the name of Jesus, I am identifying with him, his name, who he stands for, his death, his resurrection, and so on. And moreover, it also indicates who I'm closely bound to. Baptism is an indication. So when I get baptized, or when I was baptized, it indicated to whom I was bound. And in this case, it would be Jesus. When you were baptized in the name of Jesus, when you were submerged in water and so on, or when you were just simply baptized into Jesus by receiving him, you are now become closely bound to him. But not only that, but it also indicates whose property you are. So when you identify with Jesus through baptism, it simply means that he now owns you, if you will. I mean, we're bought with a price. We're not our own, right? We are no longer our own entity, if you will. I mean, in other words, it's not up to us to decide our future anymore. Everything belongs to the Lord. So since we're bought with a price, we're not our own. That means it's time to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. In fact, that is one thing that baptism also means. It's kind of, it's a vow or an act of a vow, which was understood too, especially in the early church. When you were baptized in the name of Jesus, you were essentially making a vow stating that I am going to stay bound or connected to Jesus. I'm going to be obedient and, and confess him before mankind I am his property, I, am, I belong to him. And the vow simply says, I will maintain that relationship with him. So let's examine another Greek word in, rendered as baptism. And this is baptisma, or pronounced, uh, which is Strong's number 908 from baptizo, Strong's number 907. And this is, again, baptism, neither technically or figuratively. Again, to make a thing dipped or dyed, it refers to the completed task and indicates the results of baptism. So let's begin to drill down a little bit deeper into baptism and how it relates to our standing with God. But we'll end, but we'll, we'll consider this thought. It's often been said that baptism is an outward sign of an inward work. And to a degree, that's true, but to be clear, it's actually a whole lot more than that, just as we actually alluded to just a, a minute or two ago. So the doctrine of baptisms or instructions about washings, washings refer to the Old Testament rites, which are shadows of things to come. These various ceremonial washings pointed to the New Testament 
baptisms. Okay, so now let's begin to drill down deeper in the baptism. And again, just as I said before, the, uh, the, the uh, doctrine of baptisms refer to a foreshadowing of things to come, as we talked about just a little bit ago. I'm going to repeat a little bit of what we just read and then go on further. So we'll be reading Hebrews 9, 8 through 12. 8 through 11 we've already read, but we're going to include verse 12 just to bring more clarity. It says, The Holy Spirit signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed, while the other outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshipers perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. Now verse 12, bringing a little more clarity now. But when Christ appeared as a high priest... Of the good things to come, he entered in through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood he entered into the holy place, once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. And again, as I stated earlier, it would be good to read the entire chapter for fuller context. And again, just as we said earlier, these Rituals or ceremonial washings could make no one clean. None of these connect to the blood of Jesus. So our identification with Jesus alone makes us clean and not the traditions of man. I'm stating the obvious, but you'd be surprised how many would receive Jesus and receive his grace, his mercy, Holy Spirit, and then suddenly begin to work for it, if you will not realizing that the work was completed and that the relationship changed, which is something we talked about in the last couple principles as relating repentance from dead works, which is, of course, anything that's not of faith. So people would actually depart from faith and start doing works as if their works were going to add to the righteousness of Jesus. And that's kind of what I mean by that. And, of course, the second principle is faith toward God. So let's talk about this next one, and that is John's baptism, John the Baptist. What was his baptism all about? This was called the baptism of repentance. And again, it's kind of interesting. This is kind of the forerunner to Jesus. This is the baptism that leads us into the baptism of Jesus Christ and, of course, uh, the baptism with Holy Spirit, and so on. John 1, verse 4 through 5. John did baptize in the wilderness and preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And there went out unto him all the land of Judea and they of Jerusalem and were all baptized of him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now this term for baptism is a baptisma, which is Strong's number 908. Again, this is the technical New Testament term which began with John's baptism as far as the term goes. I mean, this is distinctly associated with him as the forerunner to Jesus Christ. And we find that more clearly stated in Acts chapter 19, verse 4. Then Paul said, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto, unto the people that they should believe on him 
which had come after him, that is Jesus Christ, or that is on Jesus Christ. So furthermore, John the Baptist's or John's baptism, rather, uh, is not the same as the baptism of Jesus or the baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's not the same. But it is a water baptism, and it is closely linked to repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And let's face it, without repentance, there is no washing, if you will. Just a little bit ago, we talked about you know, the doctrine of washings or the instructions of washings. And when you think in terms of being cleansed and relating it to baptism, if a person doesn't repent, that baptism is meaningless. If a person didn't repent of their sins, repent from their dead works, and receive Jesus Christ legitimately as their Savior and their Lord, when they, that baptism means absolutely nothing. All they're doing is basically getting wet. You know, a mere profession is not the same as confession, right? Because confession is full agreement with God. It's full agreement with the Word of God. And it is also infused into the lifestyle of the believer. In other words, when you say, I am a Christian or I am a disciple of Jesus Christ, your life is going to co coincide with your words. But if you are merely professing it with your lips, but it's not in your heart, you're not in agreement, it's not a true confession, which we talked about this previously. Now, earlier I just mentioned that one thing that baptism does is it's a form of identification. So like when I'm baptized into the name of Jesus or when you're baptized into Jesus, you are identifying with him. Now, here's something that's kind of interesting. Yes, Jesus came to this earth as a servant, right? He left his rightful place with Father or with Abba. He came in as a man. He is known as the Son of Man, in which case he identifies with man as he, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for, as he represents man to God. So as the Son of Man, he's identified with us, but this is one more thing that he did when he was baptized of John. And that was that he identified with humanity so that he could carry our sins on the cross, Right? Matthew 3, verse 13 through 17. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at, at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you. And, you do, and, you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answering said unto him, permit it, permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him, and behold, the voice out of heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So again, when Jesus was being baptized, he was doing it from the standpoint of fulfilling all righteousness, meaning in order to make us righteous, he had to die in our place. And in order to do that, he had to take on our identification as the Son of Man. So when he died on the cross, he died as the Son of Man. When he resurrect, resurrected from the dead, he resurrected as the Son of God, which gave us life. And then, of course, he also sits 
as God the Son and sits in the right hand of the Father. But we need to be clear about one thing, by the way. This baptism that Jesus partook had nothing to do repent had nothing really to do with repentance on his part because Jesus had done nothing that needed to be repented of, right? Jesus never sinned. He lived the perfect life. He was just merely identifying with us so that we could take so that he could take our sins upon himself. Then we have the baptism of Jesus, and we're just going to kind of just start with this and probably go in greater detail next week. So in Matthew 28, 18 through 19, And Jesus came up and spake unto them, or spoke to them, rather, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So there we have the baptism of Jesus. We identify with him. And of course, by, adapt, by identifying with his name, we also identify with his authority, which we find later on that he's given us authority. We also identify with the Father. We identify with Holy Spirit, which leads up to the baptism with Holy Spirit and with fire and so on, which we'll talk more about that on the next time. So with that, we're going to close it up with the baptism of Jesus, and we'll, we'll go deeper into that the next round we meet together, Lord willing. So until that time, and by the way, thank you for joining me. I do appreciate the time that you take to listen. Again, until that time, be blessed, my friend.